Okay, y'all turn your Bibles to Romans 8, turn your devices on to Romans 8. Uh, Luther said these absolutely stunning words, if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I should have sunk into hell. Uh, jo- Johann von Staupitz was the vicar of the Augustinian order at the University of Wittenberg where Luther was teaching, and Luther was struggling He was struggling with compulsive desires within him. He was struggling with fears inside. And all of it culminated in this incredible need to confess his sins. To confess his sins completely. To confess his sins all the time. To confess his sins to Dr. Staupitz. Uh, All of them. Everything he had ever done wrong. Uh, In fact, he was wearing Staupitz out. Trying to do this. Trying to remember and recall all his sins of that day, of that week, of his life. Uh, On one occasion, he actually confessed his sins for six hours straight to Dr. Stalpitz. Um, Stalpitz was exhausted by Luther. And every time Luther came to him, he would counsel him and he would say, listen, he, he ended the same way. He would give the grace of God to Luther and he would end with these words every single time. He'd say, Luther, surrender to the love of God. Reflecting on Luther, Staupitz said, uh, Luther should lose himself in God. He was making religion too difficult. All he needed to do was love God. But that was Luther's problem. Luther knew he didn't love God. In fact, Luther said, I myself more than once was driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hate him, end quote. Listening to Luther, Stalpitz would shake his head every time Luther would respond very similar that way, and he'd say, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand you, Luther. What is wrong with Luther? What is the root core issue of Luther's, I don't know, his mess? What's the key to loving God? What's the key to being comfortable in your own skin? What's the key to actually having a transformed and transforming life? What we would call sanctification. What's the key to living a life of solid security and joy and peace What's the key to being used by God? I mean greatly used by him to participate exactly in what God is doing in people's lives and in the world. What's the key to racism? Ending it. Injustice. Poverty. What's the key to all that stuff? What's the key to a church having unity and a church having community and a church being a team and a church being missional? And a church longing to love people and be used by people. What's the key to all of this? What's the key to being a good friend? And a good spouse? And a good parent? What's the key? I want to welcome you to the key that unlocked Luther's heart. See if you can find it. See if you can hear it afresh. See and ask while we do so that God would grant a breakthrough for you.
this morning from this text. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who have who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit and we ask Holy Spirit that you would give and grant what you are portrayed and displayed to do in this text. Oh, would you bear witness? Oh, would you testify? Oh, would you work powerfully and deeply and convincingly and persuasively and personally in all our hearts this morning that we might truly live as sons and daughters of God? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, what was wrong with Luther? I mean, when you read Luther, anytime you read Luther, we're usually reading the later Luther. But even the later Luther struggled with this Luther his whole life. What is wrong with Luther? Why the compulsive confession of sin? Why the trauma of flaws and failures in his life? Why the driving inner anxiety? Why the debilitating insecurity? I mean, it is an incredible insecurity to spend six hours desperately trying to remember every single sin and thought, word, and deed that you've committed that day. Why the inability to love God? Why the painful, painful self-absorption? The answer is found in verse 15. Let's take a look at it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The key word in the original language, get this, is the word again. Out of all that in there, the key word is again, because again it's translated in the ESV as fall back, but that is in the text because it's pointing to the Christian's experience. Verse 15 is the Christian's experience Verse 15 is describing how a Christian can live their life, how you and I can build a life. And notice that the, you have this lowercase spirit, not the uppercase, the Holy Spirit, but the lowercase spirit. This spirit emphasizes the Christian's state of mind or his heart, his psychological energy and makeup. It highlights the Christian's inner life. Today we might call it the Christian's mental health. 
Spirit is zeroing in on a Christian's personal experience, and Paul's logic goes like this. A Christian can live like a slave or a son. A Christian can experience in the core fundamental emotional structure of their life fear or love. What's Luther's personal prison? He was living like a slave. His core driving, defining emotion in his emotional structure was fear. And that you just can't help but wonder, like, well, what about you and me? <laughs> what about you and me? What's your core emotional structure? Uh, how do you live? Like a slave or like a son? So I thought hard about that, and I'm like, well, how do you know if you do? I mean, how would you know? I mean, unless anxieties kind of bubble into the surface of your life, you know. Um, But most of us, many of us, have other ways that are not as easily identifiable to whether we're a slave or a son. So I um, I thought I'd try to think of some tests. So here's test. Here's test number one. It's a quick test. So identify where you're exhausted. Where are you exhausted in life? Wherever you are exhausted in life, that's where you live like a slave, not a son. That's where your core emotional structure is fear, not love. Here's another test. Do you confess your sin regularly to God and others? But not like Luther. Do you confess your sin regularly to God and others with the wind and the support and the power of relief and rejoicing behind it. In other words, when you confess, the winds of relief are blowing your confession. The winds of rejoicing are empowering your confession. Because here's the deal. Infrequent confession points to the prison of performance. We don't confess because our performance is so important to us that it is, it is incredibly difficult to confess our sins. So if it's infrequent, there's a sign. But if it's traumatic, it points to fear. If it's so traumatic for you to confess that you're wrong and confess that you've blown it and confess to someone that you've done something to and confess to God, if it's traumatic, if it's pulling teeth you're a fearful person. This is getting really uncomfortable, isn't it? Another test. Here's another test. If you have a need to please and a need to perform and a need to perfect and a need to control, that's the way slaves live. Here's another test. Our prayers. If our prayers are long on petition but short on praise and communion, with God, intimacy with God, that's another sign. Because slaves are always asking for things. But slaves do not find comfort in God himself. 
And comfort in God himself erupts in praise. Comfort in God himself is a real deep intimacy. Do you know that you are living like a slave when you compare yourself with other people? Compare gifts and talents and abilities, confess blessings, confess sufferings. You compare those, you rank them, because slaves are always measuring. They live by measurements. Slaves have this inner logic within them, and it comes from here. It's, this inner logic goes like this. If I'm good enough, I'll be loved. And then here's that deep core emotional structure of fear inside. But I'm not. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Sons live differently. Adoption changes everything. It changes your experience. It changes your inner emotional structure. It changes your mental health. It changes you. And that's what this passage is after. It's after you at the core of your being. It's after you at your deep emotional structure. It's after you. You. So you live as a son. So let's look at what's going on. Notice Paul's sonship logic here in verse 15. When you became a Christian, you did not receive the psychological state of a slave again. That's his argument. He's saying, listen, in other words, your inner life, your inner dynamics, uh, the heart and the mind, the way a person lives and works on the inside, that person, someone without the Holy Spirit, in that area is always a slave. And his argument is, you didn't receive that kind of a spirit when you became a Christian. You received the spirit of adoption as a son. Now, this is absolutely breathtaking for me. The verb tense of received, I want you to find, if you got a Bible, just underline receive if you have a pen or a pencil, because that's a key word. It's aorist tense, and I know that just extremely impacts you, but it does me, because this is what it means. It means a completed action. You have received, complete, done, finished, over, a new, defining, epic, inner life change. Spirit, lowercase. Heart and mind renovation. You've received it. And it came in the package of the Spirit, capital S, of adoption. The Christian has received an inner epic life change. Permanently, definitively, finally, it's over. A change so great that you've gone from a slave to a son, not only in your status, which we usually get, not only in your legal position, but in your state, in your condition, in your psychological makeup. It's been permanently changed from that of a slave to that of a son. That's the place of a Christian. She's gone from an emotional structure of fear the Christian has to an emotional structure of love permanently, definitively, exhaustively. It's over, it's done, it's been received. 
This changes everything. Do you see how this changes everything? This means, Christian, you are not a slave. You're not a slave in status. You're not a slave in your legal position. But you're also not a slave in your spirit. You're also not a slave in your inner dynamics, in your personal makeup, in your mental health. This means even when you live like a slave, you're not. Even when you feel like a slave, you're not. You are a son. And this means that your slavery is self-imposed. It's not God-imposed. So when you have thoughts of slavery and feelings of fear, that is self-imposed. It's not God-imposed. Slave thoughts are lies. Slave feelings are lies. So shake off your self-imposed slavery. All right, this means the truth, the reality of being a son is that that truth is immune to your feelings. And it's immune to your shortcomings. It's immune to your faults. It's immune to your sin. It's immune to your doubts. It's immune. You are a son. And so this means that God is greater than your heart. This means that being a son or daughter is greater than your heart and your feelings. It means that this truth, this grace of God, what God has done here is absolutely greater than what you think or feel and experience. That God has changed everything. So shake off your self-imposed slavery because slavery thoughts aren't real. Slavery feelings aren't real. They come from your old self, the flesh, which we took a look at in Romans 6. So if you need a little reminder, go back to Romans 6. So adoption changes everything. What is adoption? Well, it was more common in Roman culture than Hebrew culture. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he understood it pretty well. And he's borrowing from that image here. He's not borrowing from the Hebrew image. There wasn't a strong adoption in the Hebrew culture, though the reality is there, and it's been there in the history of Israel, but it's not spelled out like it was in Roman culture. So the timing of God having Paul solidify and sink deep into the mind and heart of the church adoption happened in the Roman culture for a reason so the image here is that it starts adoption starts in the Roman culture with a wealthy Roman adult who has no male heir to inherit his wealth he has no male heir to pass his name on to he has no have you ever watched those old movies you remember the old movies you know the, the kind like the brave hearts and those kind of movies and when someone is going to take out someone, what's the greatest threat he says to him before he slits his throat? Sorry, that's probably too graphic. Before he, he hurts him permanently, what does he do? What does he say to him? He whispers in his ear, I'm going to take out your last lineage. You will not have a son. You will not have a name. Your name ends with you. And that was like, Worse than what was going to happen to him. That's what's happening here. A Roman, wealthy Roman citizen, a male, does not have a male son. He does not have a male heir. Who knows why, but he just doesn't. So adoption starts there. Then it continues with this wealthy landowner, this wealthy Roman citizen, legally adopting a son. It could be a youth. It could be a child. It could be an adult, but legally adopts them. And then it ends with that person being adopted, becoming a new son. And you know what happens to this new son? All that son's debts 
as a slave are paid for by the father, the new father. All the father's wealth, all that the father has is now transferred to the son. He gets the father's name. He gets an instant relationship, instant wealth, instant life change because now he has new meaning, new purpose. He has a new identity by which to live by. The slave has become a son and the son has become in a bonded relationship with a father he never had and now he does. And all the father's wealth and all the father's riches and all the father's name and all the father's glory and all the father's honor and all the father's medals go to him. Just like that. Paul's image of adoption tells us that God legally adopts slaves. That's what's really important here. God legally adopts slaves, or we might say orphans, and makes them sons. So you know what this highlights? It highlights that God does everything in adoption, and the slave does nothing but be a slave. The slave doesn't win adoption. The slave doesn't earn adoption. The slave doesn't perform adoption. The slave brings nothing to the table of his adoption. He gets adopted. The father does it all. The father does everything. Adoption is an act of an immeasurable, unfathomable grace. It's simply received as a gift. Now I know some of us, some of us might be bothered by the male-only gender identification here. Um, You should be bothered. Uh, Yes, in Roman sonship, an adoption was a male-only reality. So in Rome, it was only a male. No women were adopted in this manner. Not in the manner of passing on the stuff we just talked about. But here's the beauty of it, is that Paul takes this male-only Roman institution, and he's so subversive, and he's so countercultural, he takes that male-only reality and applies it to men and women in the gospel. That is incredibly countercultural. So Christianity has always been countercultural. And when there are cultural, cultural institutional evils, the Bible loves to take them and blow them up and subvert them. And that's what's happening here. So one Roman scholar says, Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the bride of Christ. So adoption is a legal grace act of sonship. That's what it is. It's a legal grace act of sonship on the part of the father. It is free to the sons and it is free to the daughters. It is free to you and me, but it costs the father everything. So adoption is a legal act of grace, something that God does completely. It is free to the slave to become a son, but for the father to do this transaction, for the father to take a slave and make him a son, it cost him everything. It cost him his only son. His only son became a slave. His only son became a slave to sin. He became a slave to death. He became a slave 
to that emotional structure that we see in verse 15. Raw, undiluted, highest potentiality, highest potency of fear. The father gives his perfect, beautiful, only child to become a slave. To turn you and me into sons and daughters of God. It cost him everything. He spent all the riches of heaven. He spent the wealth of infinity, his own son. And now you, slaves, and me, get the wealth of God. That's what's taking place in verse 17. That's why the heir language came in. Notice it's heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There's this reality that all the Father's glories and honors and wealth and kingdoms, all that he is, he now spends in spending his son and exhausting his son on you and me to become a slave to turn us into sons. That reality is there. And then the son's wealth and riches become ours. So adoption changes everything. So what can happen? What does it change? How does it change us? There's two ways it changes us in the text. The third way I'm going to leave probably till next week. You, you notice verse 17, isn't that? that was, it was, this passage was so awesome until I got to verse 17 and that last little phrase. I mean, I was like, golly, oh, oh, that just ruined everything. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What in the world did that mean? Someone just went in and went, ah, right in the middle of the text. I was having such a great day in Starbucks Till then, right? So we're going to look at that next week. But there are two life-changing realities for us this week. Uh, there is good explanations for this. So if your mind's going in places that aren't, we'll take care of that next week. Here's what happens. Adoption changes everything. Is you can now cry to God. Do you see that? What's happening in here? What is a son doing in here? What is a daughter of God doing? They're crying to God. What is that cry? It's a loud cry. So it's not a whisper, and it's not like a conversation or speaking. It's not even praying, though it includes it, certainly. What is it? You know Martin Lloyd-Jones says? It expresses deep emotion, he said. Remember, he's the one that spent 14, or was it 17 years in Romans. He says this is a very strong word. Paul chose it deliberately. He could have chosen other words to express communicating, encountering, communing with God, but he chose this one, cry, deep, deep emotion. I mean, getting to the bottom of your emotional structure, getting to the core of your driving emotions is what this word is doing. It's touching there. Cry, chosen deliberately. He says, what then does it imply? Obviously, real knowledge of God. God is no longer to us a distant God. He's not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the Father and sees him for who he is and sees him with confidence, end quote. This is the cry of a confident child who gets a good idea of who God really is. And when he gets a good idea and begins to see God for who he is, he actually starts becoming 
and living like a son. And that's kind of the key, isn't it, to having your spirit changed? Is actually having the reality of who God really is and what he's really like, and specifically in this word called adoption and what he does there, having that kind of be pushed and moved and blown into your mind, into your heart in such a way that it elicits a deep, deep emotional cry. God wants you to know him deeply with confidence, not fear. This is the kind of relationship he established with you. He wants you to know him uh, and experience him, his nearness. He wants you to know him and experience him as your father. So this is the cry. This is what the cry means. But adoption changes everything, so you can now cry, certainly. But what do you cry here in the text? And that's Abba, Father. This is an Aramaic word. The term expresses the utmost of greatest intimacy. So it kind of goes like this. All our children, when they were young, they used to call me Daddy. Right? Daddy, hold me. Daddy, can I have a cookie? Daddy, can we go to the zoo? Daddy, can we have that lion? Daddy, where do babies come from? Ask your mommy. Um, Daddy, daddy, right? And then somewhere along the line, I became dad. Dad. Good old dad, right? You young fathers, that day will come. Those of us that are older and our children are getting older, we know exactly when that day happens. And we know that when that day happens, that our children go from calling us daddy to dad, we know we lost something. We know we lost intimacy with our children. Innocent, unadulterated, pure trust. Daddy. The world is a place in which we are constantly losing intimacy. Adoption is a world where you're always gaining it. Always gaining it. Adoption is a world where God loves you to life again. He literally loves you to life again. Because not only is he giving you the spirit of adoption, he now sends it in verse 16. Sends it to our weak, slavish, fearful hearts and bears witness to you and me that you're loved and he loves you to life again. How are you going to come alive? What's the key that unlocks your heart? It is the Father's love for you. Period. That's all the secret you need. That's all the power you need. It's life itself. So God made you a son. He made you a daughter by the work of his only son. What was that work? The son, the perfect son, the only son, had to become a slave to make you a son. 
Shake off your spirit of slavery and fear. You got it. It's with you. We saw it in Romans 6. We saw it in Romans 7. We've seen it in Romans 8 now. It is with you. It will stay with you. But you're not to give in to it. You're to shake it off when you start seeing it. You're to shake it off when you start feeling it. You're to shake it off when you sense it. You're to shake it off when you see it in your behavior. You're to shake it off. Live as a loved son. Live as a loved daughter. The Father wants you to know him. And the Father wants you to know his love. Amen.